oh man, I'm getting so stir crazy, you know. You know, I, I have a nice little setup here watching movies, but I really want to go back to the theater. I'm missing the theater so much. I was actually thinking that same exact thing the other day, where I'm just kind of miss it. I mean, I don't miss the people. Uh, you sure, know I, I don't like, like people I don't like either. people in the crowds. And just, you know, people making all kind of noise and poor theater etiquette. But I miss uh, just the experience, I guess, of sitting in a... In a theater by myself watching a movie. I also miss the popcorn. You, like I like I'm, I, I'm I haven't had a good like hot butter popcorn in in a couple months now, and it's it's getting at me. I'm scratching. The thing is, I never bought the popcorn because it's too damn expensive, well, and I'm already I'm already I'm th- paying through whatever, the nose for me. whatever for whatever. I mean, I would always yeah support your theater, you mean, Andrew. <laughs> they already got enough of my. No, they money don't. The, the ticket prices go to the ticket. fucking studio. Uh, theater didn't get any of that. I know, but I don't know. Seven dollars for well, a popcorn. Well, Andrew, stop being a cheapskate, okay? <laughs> you bought like a thousand Blu-rays, like me, okay? I, I know. It, it's it. You sound like an I old man. I know. Yeah, old grouchy man just yelling at. Nothing. Like he's got, like he's got, um, like a family of kids and stuff. You know, like to, you know, support. to support and stuff. Come on, man. I know, but it's. I I do miss that experience yes, yes. a lot. I mean, I do. I tell you, I miss the smell of the butter of the popcorn. Yes, there's nothing that really the, the atmosphere that. going to the theater and the anticipation of seeing something you're you're excited to see, sitting down in the seats, getting comfortable, maybe with a friend, you know, like just you know, it's shit comes on. There's like a, you know, there's like thirty minutes of trailers. That, that's annoying. Oh, goodness. But I get yeah, I, I did I ever tell you? I think I did. I told you. I didn't tell people the people in the podcast land, and we should introduce ourselves. Oh sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is the, of course, Cinema Discovery Project, which you obviously know since you've clicked on whatever I would think you've so, clicked yeah. on. Um, I'm Andrew Cabral, and I'm always here with my co-host, Stephen Billings. Hi, I'm Stephen Billings. I yeah. am a robot. And we're just whack- yeah, we're just waxing nostalgically about missing the yeah. movie theater experience, because who knows when that's ever going to open mm. back up. Um, they're shooting, uh, Hollywood's shooting for July. They really want to get some of those July movies out, but we'll... We yeah, I really want to see but Tenet. It, I really want to see Tenet. Yeah, that's the <laughs> one that I really want to see. I think Christopher Nolan's the only one holding that movie into July. Yeah, the studio, the studio would have already moved their, it by now. They would have moved yeah. it. Uh, but he's got some pull, yeah. apparently. Who knows? Maybe because the movies make a billion dollars apiece. Or you got to think, if but, you um, hold true and the theaters get themselves back open and people actually go, that movie's going to make so much money. Yeah, because there'll be nothing else nothing to else see. Nothing else to see and... <laughs> Like people have been, just, you know, wanting to get out and spend some Dying. money. I'll say this though: I was just talking earlier. Drive-in movie theaters are yeah going to be getting lots of business. I know uh, there's only like one drive-in I think in my state, and apparently it's all sold out tonight and tomorrow. That's night. awesome, yeah. But I think they're doing like restricted. Well, they are. There, uh, there's in one. In, there's one that's go. not too far from me, and they're doing the same thing. They 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 got rules. You can only have. I think typically they have a lot more, but I think they said the capacity will probably be only 200 cars. Um, yeah. I don't know what they're going to be showing. Um, I probably should have looked that up, but whatever it is, people want to see it. They could be re-releasing things for all we know. It could be, it could be some things right that released to VOD um, that now will get some sort of in-theater experience now. Maybe like the Troll, the Trolls movie or, or something. I don't know. But, um... I mean... That could be the case, but when it came to movie trailers, uh, those have slowed down a little bit online 
but when it came to seeing them in the in the movie theater, one theater that I typically went to only showed three. They'd yeah. Show, they would show three for every screening. And honestly, sometimes the trailers would be the older trailers. And the not movie's the already playing in the theater next door, and you're like, why is this one here? <laughs> no, no, but it would just be like, let's say a new trailer dropped, I don't know, two weeks ago, but then another trailer had dropped a few months ago. Yeah. They'd be playing the older one from a few months ago, even though the new one's available. So it's yeah. just like them yeah. dropping the ball when it comes to whoever puts those trailers packages together for them and it always kind of bothered me because it's like just hire me i'll do it oh I'll jesus it. you talk about you won't even buy seven dollar popcorn you won't. yeah but i'll put their oh, trailers jesus. together if they pay me but then the other theater i went to they showed like six or seven of them before it yeah, was like it's 25 minutes man. of trailers and i'm like this is and, and the thing I is is on. it's only gotten worse because we're like the etiquette of coming to the theater is it's okay to be late like you're, they're, they're basically they're giving padding for the people that like to come in at the last minute, um, right? And I mean, so I, I like to get there typically earlier. Yeah, um, I like to get there at least twenty minutes early. Yeah. If someone walks in during the trailers, I don't get mad. If I walk in during the trailers, I hope no one gets mad at me. The thing is, know, is it's, it's 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 easier for people to be late because they can get a ticket online and they got their seat guaranteed. So then they'll wait to the last minute to show up. Well, the thing is, the theaters I go to don't have reserved yeah. seating, so it's, and then they, and then they just do it because they're want. ignorant. Yeah, now they're just <laughs> ignorant. Um, but back and out of that, well, you know, if you if you yeah, caught our last episode, we talked about um, you know great directors' debuts, you know, great first movies and directors' careers, and that was great. That was fun. And so now we're gonna do the flip side, and we found while trying to research this a lot diff- more difficult, and that is. The like good last movies. I'm not gonna say masterpiece last movies, but serviceable, solid last movies from filmmakers' careers. Um, yeah, and I think we're all. And then I think at the end we're going to perhaps um, say some other last films by uh, directors that we haven't seen yeah, yet. Some that I've are known for being pretty pretty good. And yeah, and and also perhaps just some no, some last films by notable directors in general that we haven't seen. Maybe they like weren't people good. People <laughs> like Francois Truffaut and yeah, Fellini, Truffaut, people like that that we've talked about many times and we're always wondering where did their careers end because we've always talked about where their careers started. Yeah. We've always talked about that. And what I found to be so difficult about preparing for this episode is a lot of these films are tough to find to watch. Yeah. If you don't have you know, the DVD or Blu-ray um, in your collections already. If you're trying to find them streaming anywhere or anything like that, just just to, you know, watch them quickly, they're really tough to find even streaming. And that was kind of a pain in the neck. And also, uh, some of these films I've never heard of before yeah. just because I hadn't thought about them. Um, but this is going to be similarly structured to what we did last week. Steve and I will go back and forth in terms throw, of... Throw, throw one out there at each other, see if we can... Yeah, we'll see. We'll see our each other's reactions yeah. and whatnot. Um, uh, do Do you care who goes? Didn't matter first? to me. You, you, if you want to go first, go ahead. Who went first last time? Was it you? Was I don't it know. I don't remember. I don't remember. You know what? I'll you start, start out because I did tell I did tell Stephen I had a hot. He wants, take he wants the heavy hitters. He's right going. He's going to hit you how hit you in the face really hard. When yeah, we're going, we're going with a scolding, scolding hot take, and and the hot take of the day for me is the last film from my favorite director of all time, Stanley Kubrick, and that is Eyes Wide Shut, which came out in 1999. 
starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And I think this was towards the the end of their marriage, I think. I'm not quite sure about celebrity uh, prob- relationships. Probably. You know, this movie probably, probably ruined their relationship. Around that time. <laughs> anywho, anywho, this film is rather divisive in terms of um, some people love it like, and some people hate it. And I'm one of the people who love it. I'm one of the people who love it to the point where when I was going through Stanley Kubrick's filmography, when I got to Eyes Wide Shut, the film was had such an impact on me that it cemented him as my favorite filmmaker of all time. Like, that's how great I think this film is. Because it's so hypnotic in so many of its ways. And, of course, it's always remembered for being a very overtly uh, sexual film. It's a film that does depict um, large scenes of uh, sex orgies. Because Tom Cruise's character in this film ends up somehow getting a password to one of these, like, rich people sex parties, essentially. And everybody there is dressed in costume and masks, so it's all anonymous. And it's just, there's just this haunting sequence of him walking through this gigantic mansion. And just everywhere you turn, someone's having sex. Like, nudity everywhere. So, of course, this film is not for everyone if you're you know, sensitive to that type of thing in your, in your movies. But the film was also about, like, the, um, like, kind of the, uh, destruction of a marriage or the kind of existential crises of a marriage because there's a lot of contentious, um, moments with Tom Cruise's character and Nicole Kidman's character, and it's really powerful in that regard, and it's, it's one of those films that also takes place, I think, over a couple of nights or one night. And it's just an odyssey journey of this character. And the way in which Kubrick does this film is it's so haunting with its score and its mise-en-scene and its camera work. The way, you know, Kubrick has done many of his things throughout his career. Specifically, like The Shining, I think the tone of The Shining is what really makes that film so frightening. And of course, that third act is just wild and crazy. But Eyes Wide Shut for me is just like, wow, nobody's making this type of movie. Yeah. Like, no one's trying to make this type of movie. And that's kind of what I really love about it. That's kind of what I love about a lot of cinema. It's like, you know, who's pushing the boundaries? You know, who's willing to take that chance? And sometimes you swing for the fences and you miss. And, you know, or or sometimes you swing for the fence and you hit a home run. But for me, it's... it's um. It's a, a very uh, deep philosophical existential film, and it's not for everyone. And I know people; some people hate it, but I happen to be one who loves it. All Steven? right. Yeah, I mean, I I wish I, I haven't I have not seen that movie yet, and, and you know, I might have mentioned it in another podcast. I'm not like I'm not like a super Kubrick fan. I, I mean, I like some of his movies, but um, I'm, I'm not I'm not like a hardcore fan like you. But I, I I'd like to check check out that movie. I like Tom Cruise. I think he's crazy. I mean, he's going to space oh, now. Yeah, so definitely crazy. He's going to space now. So um, he's always yeah. in space. In yeah. Well, Scientology for you. Um, <laughs> all right. So you know, I knew Andrew was going to have some heavy hitters on his list. I, I was going now. The, now these directors are some of them are I would say are heavy hitters, but I, I'm going for some some I would say more you know some of them are more journeymen. Some some of them are a little older. Um, I'll hit you with William Wyler's last film. Um, nice. The Liberation of L.B. Jones. Um, I actually found this streaming on Amazon, which was it, I was surprised. Um, and this is kind of it's kind of one of the movies that you kind of I think got used to seeing during that time. Like um, 
kind of a deep Southy movie about racism. Um, you know, it makes it, it recalls stuff movies like In the Heat of the Night or um, honestly, it, this movie somewhat kind of reminds me of a more recent movie, um, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Um, it has kind of that feel to it a little bit. Um, but basically, um, this movie is about, you know, deep-seated racism. I mean, it's about – apparently, the, the, the it's based on a book, and it's the exact account from this person's perspective of what was going on in this town during this time. And it's basically these corrupt cops that are um, just a, running amok in this town, and it's um, – it's disturbing. A lot of it's actually, and there's some, and there's actually some very gory scenes in this movie. Um, for a William Waller movie, I was, I was like, this doesn't seem like anything I've ever really seen him do. Like he's like getting some frustration out or something. I don't know what it is, but it's a very off the wall movie for his filmography and for it to end up being his last movie. Um, I thought was very interesting, you know, cause I'm, you know, you're used to seeing like, you know, best years of our lives, you know, I, I think the closest I've seen to something like this was something that ha- he did like maybe five years earlier than that, which was the collector, um, where, you know, um, Terrence Stamp plays like a, a killer that kidnaps a woman. And like, so that was closer to this, but like this movie is very seventies. It feels very seventies and it's the start of the decade. And, um, it's, I would say if there's a critique I have, it feels like his direction in this movie feels like he's making the movie from back in the forties. It doesn't have a lot of style. It's very, I would say just by the book directed, but there's some very shocking scenes and there's, and it's, it's, it's a hard hitting movie uh, that I think you could get some enjoyment out of um, and maybe some perspective out of the situation. Um, but it's worth taking a look at. You got, um, What's the actor's name? Uh, Legion. Yeah, Tom. yeah, yeah. He he plays the lawyer in the movie, and um, he's he's pretty good in the movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, just checking out some of these all-time great directors and look at the, what their last movie is. I'm like, this is an interesting, like, from where he started out in his career to where he is there. Um, you know, he started out what in the 40s, and you know, ended there at the 70s. Um, yeah, nineteen seventy. He started out. Oh man, actually started out in, in the thirties, doing shorts, doing shorts in the twenties. Yeah, see, yeah, his Silent and just shorts, to see yeah. where their minds are, you know, that far, you know, going four decades later, three decades later, you know. So it's always fascinating to me to watch. That's why when I always tell people to, if you want to get into some of these all-time directors or even any director. I always like to start from the beginning and you work your way forward. Yeah. Because you like to see, because the evolution can sometimes be really fascinating to see, like, what do they do, especially with long careers. Like, this one spans, like, what, was like three decades? Four or decades, so, yeah. Even more? Four decades? I was close. Um, and they, and it's just, and just, you just see the way, like, film filmmaking and, like, the films change over time. Yeah. You know, like a movie made in the 20s is not going to be the same. The same way a movie's made in the '60s or 1970. Or yeah, not even like just the technical, but just the th- the the aesthetics. The, the, well, yeah, just not the technical or the aesthetics, but just the like. I, my, the m- most interesting thing for me is what's on the director's mind. You know, what are they mm. what are they talking about in their movies? What are they interested in? 
And are they able to do it in a way that's still they're still making good movies? Like sometimes right. they might have something to say, but they don't know how to say it. Um, or they say it in a way that's maybe off-putting, which I think is a lot of what Oliver Stone does nowadays. I think Oliver Stone always has something to say, but sometimes he says it in oh, a way yeah. that is maybe too abrasive. Uh, well, not only that, but he says it the like he doesn't he he picks a side yeah. and he's and it's it's an, it's usually a controversial side. Um, well, not only that, but it's usually his. It's, side. That's what I'm saying. He doesn't. Say he if, never makes a movie that's like, hey, here's this thing. You decide for yourself. Oh yeah. no, yeah. He like he. Like he made J, like when he made JFK, it's like he really like dove headfirst into the conspiracy yeah. theory of like the, the assassination of JFK and stuff like that. Like he's not saying he's he like here, this like, is the history. He didn't play the other side where he's like, you know, maybe none of yeah, this. Yeah, actually he's happened. like, this no, is the history. Like, this really yeah, did happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that that's the way he plays it. But I guess switching from that, uh, going to another a filmmaker whose career spanned all the way from the 20s into the 70s, coincidentally, is Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. And his last film was Family Plot, which was 1976, and starring Karen Black and Bruce Dern. And it's a film that's very much up his alley, not exactly departing from uh, what he hadn't already done with the past. It's... You know, it's a mystery, um, you know, a crime drama with a little bit of dark comedy thrown in there. And just, it's been years since I've seen it. So the IMDb synopsis is a phony psychic slash con artist and her taxi driver slash private investigator boyfriend encounters a pair of serial kidnappers while trailing a missing heir in California. So right there, it's a, it's a caper, which is very, very, very much up Hitchcock's alley. And it's not the best film in his filmography. I don't think it's the worst film in his filmography, but it's, it's kind of in the, somewhere in there somewhere. You know what I mean? It's, it's not the worst, but it's, it's, it's his last film because he did pass away. I want to say a few years later. And by that point he was already quite, yeah, he passed away in 1980, so he he passed away a few years later. And if you've seen him in the late 70s, he wasn't doing well with, you know, health and age and stuff like that. But it's it's a solid film. It's a solid film. I think it's kind of cool to see Bruce Stern back in the 70s because I think Bruce Stern, when people see him now, just assume he's been this old man this yeah, whole time, yeah. just randomly showing up in movies. Like, he just randomly shows up now and as a character actor. And we talked about Karen Black when we talked about uh, the the spotlight we did on Five Easy Pieces. Yeah. So she, there was another film in that era that was um, that she was in, and it's part of that whole kind of. It's not quite a new Hollywood film, but it's fascinating for me to see Alfred Hitchcock playing in the post like uh, MPA rating uh, area and see what he does. Because he made Frenzy right before this, which I think is a great film. And he was finally able to really flesh his more macabre and sinister muscles with with that film. And this film is kind of like, uh, it, it's not it's not as, as grotesque as that one is. It's not as, um, I wouldn't say gory, but as violent. And this film is more like a come down to um, something that's more than his wheelhouse. So it's kind of more of an average film for him. But I thought I would bring it up because he is, you know, considered one of the all-time greats. And I think it's important to recognize his last his last work as well. And I, his last work often gets, like, often gets 
um, not watched, you know, yeah. not, or not talked about. Everyone seems to stop at like Psycho or Marnie, and no one watches like his mid '60s work, late '60s work, and his two films he did in the '70s. No one really gives those films a fair shot. So I thought I would mention um, Family yeah. Plot. It also has a great ending, a great reveal at the ending of um, it, it. Of course, it deals with a MacGuffin and stuff like that, classic Hitchcock stuff. Cool. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and uh, I'm gonna throw you another old timey guy. I guess we'll probably Ooh. work our way forward. But uh, uh, Mr. Michael Curtiz. Uh, um, oh, nice. His last film was a western with uh, John Wayne. And it is the Comerches. Oh, Comerchos. the Comercheros? Yeah. I've been wanting to watch this movie for like seven years. <laughs> but go on. Yeah, go yeah, on. yeah. It, you know, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's very much a classic Western movie. I mean, it's not, it is definitely a John Wayne vehicle. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, I haven't seen a ton of John Wayne movies, but it's, it's definitely the feel good John Wayne movies. It's not, it's not your, Sergio Leone, you know, bloody westerny. It's the colorful, um, you know, cheery, uh, kind of, you know, kind of almost in this movie, particularly almost like a buddy cop western, because you got uh, John Wayne who plays like a Texas Ranger, and he's he's told to go and, and arrest this man played by um, Stuart Whitman who plays uh, Paul Regret, which is a terrible last name. Um, and he's a gambler and he's, you know, he's on this ship and he, he has to go and arrest him. And basically he gets away from him at one point and then they meet back up again. And then he say, you know, I don't want to give away the whole movie, but it's very much, you know, one guy's on one side, one guy's on the other side. And then they kind of come together to fight the, uh, another enemy, which is this kind of war profiteering, um, group of men that are like selling guns to the, uh, the Native American Indians and that are, you know, become kind of a pest in that area. They're like, you know, burning down towns and stuff. And, and, um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a very entertaining movie. There's not, it's not very, bo- you know, it's not slow. It's, it keeps, he keeps the pace moving and, um, it's got some great scenery. You know, a lot of these old Westerns were shot on locations and they, it looks really nice. And, you know, it's it's not you know, like I said, it's not this. It's not the most hard hitting western. It's not the, It's not Red River. It's not The Searchers. It's not. But it's it's definitely right. a fun, entertaining, um, something that my you know Michael Critties would have done before. You know, I mean, I mean, this is the guy that did Casablanca. You know, he's done some great great films over the years, and this is like kind of just like a you could almost say a greatest hits of things that he could he did throughout his career and in this Western where John Wayne was kind of, you know, this is 1960s, 1960, right. you know, Western's kind of getting, people don't care about the Western as much anymore. So no, the, the, by that, I mean, by the, I would say mid sixties, late sixties, the Western genre is kind of on its way yeah. out or it's, 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 shifted it's, it's yeah, yeah. It's it, it, the Clint Eastwood was becoming the next Western star. Well, yeah, the, the, the spaghetti Westerns kind of changed yeah. everything. And I think it changed the genre for the better, to be honest with you. But after the Spaghetti Westerns came out, there were a few people who were still clinging to these, this kind of old Western, like you're talking yeah. about, the Comancheros, this John Wayne Western, the classic John Wayne Western. And John Wayne was the was the only one yeah. who was clinging to those. Well, he, he was <laughs> comfortable. He, he was comfortable with what he did. Yeah. 
you know, but he he did not like the spaghetti westerns. Um, obviously, because he's but because he's old because he can only do yeah. so much as an actor. So he he doesn't need to. He doesn't want to change his style. Not only that, but even into the seventies, up until he died, he was making the same type of westerns that that you're yeah. talking about here. You um, could say True Grip maybe was the only one that changed yeah, things up a, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, really. Yeah, and he won an Academy was, Award really for it. Film. He did. <laughs> he did. Um, I guess I will. Uh, if you're gonna go with um, a John Wayne western, I guess I'll go with one myself. Sure. I'll go with Howard Hawks' last oh. film, Rio Lobo, okay. which was also uh, coincidentally streaming on Amazon as of this podcast. And this actually came out nine years after the film you just talked about. This came out in 1970. So as I was just saying, John Wayne still making yeah. the same type of Western, 1970. Um, and this is, of course, like I said, directed by um, uh, How, um, Howard Hawks, Rio Lobo. Um, basically, after the Civil War... Um, John Wayne plays this character called Cordman uh, McNally, and he was like a colonel or some, or a captain in the war, and he's searching for a traitor who, um, like he gave he gave some information to the rebels, and it caused like one of his one of his men to die. So he's hunting down this character this whole time, and he ends up in this town of Rio Lobo, where like the sheriff is corrupt, and like there's like uh, and he's kind of like running the show and just like taking the law into his own hands. So it kind of has that whole like wild, like untamed, un unruly West type feel to it, and of course you know John Wayne is the hero and he's he's uncovering all this kind all this uh, kind of stuff, and he he's taking down the bad guys and all this kind of stuff. So it's it's not a great movie, but it, like I said, it's kind of an average. John Wayne Western, and I think it's an average film from Howard Hawks. It's not; it wouldn't be the worst Howard Hawks film I've ever seen. But it's you know, it's not a five star movie. It's more of in like the three to three and a half range type movie. It's solid. You know, the filmmaking is solid. And it's a fun time to watch, but it's it's not really going to you know change the Western genre at all or anything like that. It's not the best we've seen from Hawks or John Wayne, but it's one that I had wanted to watch just because. I've always been a fan of Howard Hawks. He's someone who I think a lot of people, um, when they first get into classic film, they end up they they somehow end up watching a lot of Howard Hawks' stuff. They end up watching like you like you mentioned Red River, or he did The Big Sleep to Have and Have Not. Um, uh, Sergeant York is another great one. Only Angels Have Wings, Bringing Up Baby. He has a very versatile filmography, and westerns happen to be one of them. He also did Rio Bravo which was another John Wayne Western, that's a good Western. Uh, the thing with Rio Bravo is that it's it's the Howard Hawks, John Wayne answer to High Noon, Fred Zinneman's High Noon about the whole um, uh, House and Americans Committee and the and the blacklisting and all that kind of stuff. It's very, those two films are very uh, politically uh, leaning films. And it's it's kind of interesting how they they work together i guess several times in several westerns but rio lobo is uh, not their best western they worked with but it's i would say it's not even the worst film that they worked in but it was solid yeah. i enjoyed watching it cool all right uh i might even be going a little further back than the ones we went yet yeah. um back i know right time. maybe the cinema discovery machine here we go um, all the time in the world. Yeah, time we're going to go to a director that I think is. I think you probably agree with me. One of the 
one of maybe one of the first great directors we ever had, uh, F. W. Murnau. Um, Ooh, his man, you went. I way know, back. right? Uh, his last movie is a movie called Taboo: The Story of the South Seas. Um, and you can actually find this movie on YouTube for free right now. Um, oh yeah, it must. What year did it come? Uh, Nineteen thirty-one. So. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's so. Yeah, we're talking seventy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's probably in the public domain. Public domain, domain. Yeah. but you can get a DVD, a Blu-ray, um, from Kino. I think it's it's got a lot of his stuff. Um, but this movie is, is is honestly it's it's basically the Romeo and Juliet kind of story. Uh, it's kind of a Shakespeare story. Basically, you got this the, this island, the South Pacific South Pacific island, um, and they kind of have these rituals and they have these. Uh, these they have this kind of like I guess you could say religious belief that there's a woman in the village that has to stay pure, has to be a virgin, has to be you know, and basically the girl they have that's supposed to be that ends up falling in love with one of the men in the village. It's you know, and they they're basically trying to stop them, so they run away and um you know try to live a life outside of there, but then they're pursued, still pursued by the. I guess the founders of the island or whatever. It's it's a very simple story. The sh- story, movie's only an hour and 25 minutes, but it's mm. very beautifully photographed. You know, this is, a movie, like I said, 1931. I mean, this is a silent film. Um, the one interesting thing about it is, is, you know, a lot of times in silent films, you have title cards that kind of give you some dialogue to give you maybe a little bit of context. They kind of, d- they do that in the movie, but they don't. Like, they... Most of the, the the talking is used almost through people writing letters. Um, so it's like almost like when you find a good reason to do found footage the right way. You know, they're mm-hmm. using cue cards not just – it has double meaning. You know, they, they're not just using them for the obvious purpose of you needing to hear some dialogue or needing to see some dialogue, but that they're actually in the story. They're writing letters. They're doing the thing. Um, thought that was interesting, and uh, it's just beautifully photographed. I mean, I, you know, they're on real locations on islands, and um, they use a lot of non-actors, and they do all very good job. And um, you know, I think a lot of silent film is just pure filmmaking because you really have to tell your story through visuals. You know, you have to convey emotions, and there's a few there's a few moments in the movie where um, the female who's you know, kind of stressing out about being um, found founded by the, the I guess the founders of the island. It's this one particular old man who she keeps seeing in her dreams and seeing who thinks she's seeing him in real life, but then he's not really there. And they do a couple scenes like that that are kind of scary. And I'm like, that's pretty good. I mean, like for a silent movie, they they, they he's very much pulling off something very very you know incredible. And um, you know, for his last movie. Which I think he, you know, I don't think it was on part. This was very much a more tragic ending. I think Murnau was only like in his forties when he died. I think he died in a car crash. Um, mm. So very much had a lot more filmmaking probably probably ahead of him. Um, but this ended up being his last movie, and I think it was really good last movie. Um, you know, this is a guy that's done a lot of um, influential movies. You know, he he did Nosferatu. He, you know, um, what City Girl. He did Faust. Fal- talking about FW. Yeah. Faust, yeah. which is uh, a, a uh, sunrise. Yeah, um, I haven't watched it yet, but I hear it's really good. The Last Laugh um, is a silent film that's apparently really good. Um, 
so you know it, it's definitely a worth worth your watch i mean it's it's it, like i said you can check it out for free or you can you can buy it which i'll probably will buy it eventually so huh. so switching over to what i'm going to be talking about is i'm not going to go as far back as steven I'm going to go a little, uh, maybe it's, it's not actually current at all. The thing is, 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 most of ours are going to probably be a little later because you got to think. Some the, yeah, the, These some, directors have to either be dead ones. or they have to be retired. <laughs> we can't pick directors yeah, that, that are like closer to our time. That, that's another thing is a lot of our f- current favorites are still working. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the people we talked about in our in last time's episode are all people still working? Yeah, not all of us are quit. Not all of them are Quentin Tarantino, and they're like, "Hey, I'm gonna quit after ten movies." Bullshit. Which, yeah, yeah it, it, <laughs> that's even up in the air if that actually yeah. happens. But um, the last film from this particular director came out in 1959, as I was saying, and that is *Imitation of Life*, and that is directed by Douglas Sirk. Okay. And Douglas Sirk is famous for doing. Uh, melodramas in the 1950s these technicolor uh beautiful technicolor melodramas in the in the 1950s films like um all that heaven allows and stuff like that and he he um and this film is interesting to me because it, it it's a remake actually of a 1934 film starring claudette colbert of the same name uh, so that's kind of fascinating that some that they would make remake it like 25 years later. Um, and this film is all about, uh, basically, um, it well, the stars uh, Lana Turner, uh, Sandra Dee is in the film, um, and it, it's about uh, a woman played by Lana Turner. She befriends a, like a, uh, a, like a homeless black woman, and they become friends, they share an apartment, but they each have, they each have daughters around the same age. So, Lana Turner's character, I think at one point, like hires, um, like the, the hires the her, but they're friends, but she hires her to like you know give her a job and all that kind of stuff. So the daughters grow up together. But the thing is, uh, the daughter of the African American um, um, character, uh, who is, who, who is uh, can't can't find the name, but who, but oh, her name is Andy Johnson, played by Juanita Moore. Is that the daughter is. Uh, she's lighter skinned like she she can pass for being white so the daughter without telling her mother does that throughout through while she's growing up because she understands that in you know in america at that time being white is more beneficial than being african-american so she tries to pass off as as black denying her you know african her african heritage and and really kind of shunning her mother and resenting her mother in that regard so the film is extremely powerful like i said it's a melodrama so you're dealing with very dramatic sequences of confrontation and just you know some people think melodrama melodrama is over the top and it's too much and one can make that argument but it's like drama is supposed to be dramatic so you might as well go for it if you're if the material calls for it and i think for something like this dealing with race in the late 1950s when we're when we're in the middle of um uh, all that type of racial tension within this country and all that kind of stuff this is some some serious heavy-weighted stuff that i think still holds water today and still is rather current in in dealing with racial injustices and 
uh, and racism and all that kind of stuff. So Imitation of Life, I think, holds up extremely well. And it's a really great film by Douglas Sirk. Douglas Sirk is slowly becoming one of my favorite uh, filmmakers of all time. I, I, I'm always happy to to see or get more of his films in my collection. I'm, I'm, they're slowly starting to release his movies on Blu-ray, which is great because, like I said, he shoots in Technicolor. And Technicolor yeah. has those those bold those bold colors, so you really like need the best uh, you know exposition that exposition um, showcase for them. I guess like he did a Magnificent Obsession, which is a great film. He did. Um, uh, a film that came out, actually, Magnificent Obsession recently got a Blu-ray release. He did All That Heaven Allows, and he did another film that I really like and I can't find right now. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's he, his films always really are really really good. And I and he did quite a few films in his career. And I think I want to see he didn't actually um, pass away after this. He actually. Uh, passed away in 1987, and this film came out in 1959. So we're talking many, many years of retirement yeah. here. He did do a few things afterwards, but they looked like they were all shorts where he was a, sh- a supervising director. And the way I think we're kind of judging this is um, the last, like, theatrical feature Yeah, yeah, we're not talking about anything maybe they've <clears throat> done on TV or, you know. Yeah, I didn't include, like, TV... I, I didn't even include TV movies yeah. or anything like that when I was doing my research. Or even I, I even debated whether to count documentaries. I, yeah, I, I wasn't going to count documentaries either. Yeah. Okay. I, th- I feel like I feel like that that's that a little bit of a different, you know, beast. Um, mm. I'm, we're thinking theatrically released feature feature na- like narrative, na- films. narrative films. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that's Imitation of Life. It is available on both DVD and Blu-ray, but the DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, they they both are like two packs where you get the original 1934 film as well as the 1959 yeah. film. I don't think they've ever released them separately. Maybe they have, and I just don't <laughs> know it. But the the uh, this is a collector's a collector's quandary yeah. here, Stephen. And maybe this has hit you before. Have you ever bought a DVD version of a movie and then like a month or two later they announced the Blu-ray release? I'm sure. I'm sure because it's that happened. happened to me. That happened with me with Imitation of yeah. Life. And I still don't own the Blu-ray, and I look at the DVD every day in great regret. Yeah, well, yeah, and then you like paid like more than you should have for the DVD, you know? Like, oh, yeah. yeah, the DVD, the DVD and the Blu-ray, those like the same. Yeah, I'm price. like fucking bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it happens sometimes, man. We 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 get impatient and we buy something, and then unfortunately the. Uh, yeah, the, then some the the movie gods are like, ha ha ha, you know, here you go. The power, the powers that be working yeah, against you. It happens sometimes. Well, I'm gonna move on, and you know, speaking of, you know, you were talking about like Bruce Dern being an actor that you're n- normally seeing old, and you don't can't. It's hard to think of him in any other way than him when he was in his his uh, older age. But I I, I could say yeah. that about an, another the actress in this movie, in this filmmaker's movie. Mm. Um, this is a film from a, a director that's I would say looking at his career is is kind of almost reminiscent of Kubrick. And the thing is, he's actually made less movies. Um, and that's Jack Clayton. Oh, and his man. last movie is The Lonely Passion of Judith uh, Hearn. And this stars uh, Maggie Smith, who is what I'm talking about. We're, we're used to seeing Maggie Smith being elderly. You know, she's in Harry Potter movies. You know, she's, you know, Dun, Dunton Abbey. Um, yeah, she's in Dunton and, Abbey, uh, yeah. But in this movie, this is back in... 
1987, so she's a little younger here, and and wow. this is honestly one of the first movies I've seen of her at this age. So it's like, um, it's it was it was nice to see her doing something different. And but this is a movie from Jack Clayton, who's I've seen a few of his movies now, and he's only done I think seven movies. He only did seven movies. Yeah, he's got ten credits to his name, but yeah, you, I think he only did seven, seven features. Feature yeah. And you have to, I mean, for those of you out there, have to go and look at the dates because his filmography is so strong. And, th- and that's the other thing I was going to say. The other thing that makes me think of him as kind of like kind of like Kubrick is apparently he was very hard. They, they, he did, he was very difficult, apparently. Um, that That's what he was labeled to be. So when it came to the studio, like Hollywood studio system, they didn't want to work with him because he was too picky and he was too demanding um, because he only wanted to do the movies he wanted to do. Um, so he had that perfectionism that Kubrick had, except Kubrick apparently was able to, you know, work with the studios a lot better than he could. Um, but, and they're both English, I think too. So, um, that another thing, mm-hmm. another comparison, but I've seen, I haven't seen roof at the, at the top yet, which I've hear is really good. Um, but I've seen the innocence and that's a very kind of, they've already remade it. I think at least a couple of times, um, and it's a horror movie ghost story. And then The Pumpkin Eater, which was a very big surprise to me. I thought that was a, a really good movie. And he did he did The Great Gatsby in the 70s. Um, uh, he did Our Mother's House, which I haven't seen yet. And he did Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is a great title. Uh, and then the movie... I think that... Yeah, I think that's um, an adaptation of the... Of the... Of the... Uh, Ray, Ray Bradbury is book. It? Yeah. I remember I had to read it for like summer reading. Yeah, it is, and, and yeah, I mean, it look. I mean, I haven't seen it, but it's. It looks like it might be pretty interesting too. And then, um, and then the movie I'm going to talk about, the Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn. Um, this movie is is very melancholy. I think you'll like it. Um, <laughs> it's basically <laughs> about. I mean, it's about a middle aged uh, woman who kind of goes to lives in this kind of like you could say like a. It's like a house. It's like an apartment building, but it's a, it's a house where people share different rooms and they all come down and have breakfast and you know it's and you also got bob hopkins who's in this movie uh hopskins Ho- hoskins i say bob hopskins uh, yeah i i didn't want to yeah yeah no him, I, yeah. I i know i say his name wrong but um he plays the brother of the owner of the of the facility and um he's in it he's a very morally like the thing is is you're supposed to like him, but then he does some not so nice stuff in the movie that you, you, it's not easy to like him. But this movie is very much about, um, you know, people that don't act in life. I think I think it's a movie about, you know, like people that spend a lot of time wanting to do things or like dreaming to do things, but then don't do them, and how lonely and sad that can be. Um, and then to watch you know, our Maggie Smith's character try to do them things that she wish she would have done earlier and see her kind of like how hard it is for her to do them things is it's sad. I mean, it's a sad movie, but it's a, it's, it's a very well told story, a very well acted. Um, and honestly, the, the thing about Jack Clayton's movies is, is they're just, I think all stunning movies. I think, um, the set direction, I think, the way he frames shots, him and whoever his cinematographer is for whatever movie, I think he frames shots amazingly. I, I like his, I like his eye. 
Um, and uh, this is definitely – I got this movie from – uh, Powerhouse Indicator has a release that they just released, and I think it has another release somewhere else. But um, it's it's worth a buy. It's it's very good, very like I said, melancholy, but it's got it's got some good uh, themes in there, and it's um, it's a crier. It may be a cry, maybe you might cry, maybe, but it's mm. good. Good acting performance from Maggie Smith. Nice, nice. I have to check it out because I've only seen. Um... Innocence from him. Uh-huh. That's the only. That's the only film of his I've seen. Typically, uh, that one's rated one of his best, but honestly, it's not been my favorite of what I've seen so far. So, oh, fun, funny okay. enough, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Innocence starring Deborah Carr, and that film is haunting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's supposed to be a ghost, a ghost story type film. Yeah, they just, just recently remade that film. movie with that movie Turning that came out. That oh, was a really? remake of the Innoc- of Innocence. I didn't yeah. know that. Okay, then. Um, I guess we'll move on to me. And I'm going to get into a movie now that I can't quite fully explain (laughs) because it's a film you kind of have to watch on your own because it's that type of a heavy film. And you'll you'll understand when I I tell you because it's part of a trilogy. Okay. And it's part of the Three Colors trilogy. Mm. And it's Three Colors Red, which is the third film in the trilogy. So I would recommend watching Blue, yeah. White, and You're going to have to watch the two other That's, ones first. Kind of have to watch the two other ones because they all do connect, and the connection all comes in this film. You could say in a way. sense that this all three movies are his last movie. In a way, you could say that. They were all made at the very end of his career. And this is, of course, um, Christoph, uh, Christoph Kislowski. And before I had seen any of his films... I kept hearing three yeah. about the Three Colors trilogy. When I first started collecting Criterions, I kept hearing about the Three, three Colors trilogy. And then I bought it, and then I watched them. And then I also watched his film, The Double Life of Veronique, which is kind of a quasi-Three Colors movie. I think you could call it like Three Colors Yellow or oh, something okay. like that. Or maybe green. I don't know. <laughs> but it's... <laughs> uh, maybe but, red. I don't know. Maybe red. Red I mean, yeah, too, part like, two. I don't know. I don't know. Just pick, pick a damn color. Uh, but... Each of these films are all about, like, all of them center around a certain theme, and like, and they center around the theme of the French uh, flag, where like each bar of the French flag, you know, the the colors blue, white, and red are are liberty, equality, and fraternity, and each film kind of revolves around those themes in a in a certain way. In this film is a very uh, cynical film, but it's all about, like, cynicism and connection and human connection and all kinds of stuff. And I honestly, I could read you the plot, the, the synopsis, and it, would, it wouldn't it would even come close to what yeah. the movie's about. But it's but the film is about uh, this, uh, this model who is, her name is Valentine, and she is uh, a young model living in Geneva, and she she accidentally runs over a dog someday. She doesn't kill the dog, so it's not one of those movies where the dog dies. But he she brings it over to she finds the owner, and the owner's just this old retired judge who's just like cynic, you know, negative, you know, negative about everything and pessimistic and all that kind of stuff. And the film is about relationship between human beings and all that kind of stuff. And I I can't explain these films. To people without just in justifying it in any way, you kind of have to experience 
them for yourself. But Keslowski, is, I think, is a director who many cinephiles know of very well. Um, he is a Polish director, and his films, and he has 41 credits to his name, but he started out doing a lot of, um, looks like uh, documentary shorts, TV documentaries, stuff like that. His first, I want to say his first feature film looks like it didn't come till 1976. And yeah, he did a lot of political stuff, I would say, in Poland in the 1970s, and a lot of TV stuff as well. Uh, his film, his uh, an- anthological film, uh, The Decalogue, well, it's not really a film, it's more of yeah, a series. Yeah, it's like a limited was, well, series. I believe on yeah. Polish television series, and like each one was all about, like I think, centering around the Ten Commandments or something like that. And he did the film Blind Chance, which was all about, you know, the way chant, like, like different... If you take different paths, they can lead to different scenarios happening and all kind of stuff. So he's dealing with films on a very philosophical level. His films are not exactly like light watching. Yeah, they're, 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 they take a certain amount of attention to... Uh, yeah. And what's interesting is he's not, he's not even the most serious or heavy director on that I'm going to talk about. I think, like, I'm just going to I know, to I know what you're going to... I, I know what you're going to... Yeah. I figure if I'm if I'm here at the heavy level now, I might as well stay here. Well, I got I got time. one more to talk. I got one I got one more to Steven. talk about. Um, okay. I don't have I have one more on my list here, and um, this is the most modern one we have. Uh, this nice. is uh, Tony Scott. Uh, oh wow! Un- unstoppable. Um, you know, we lost Tony Scott not too long ago. He uh, unfortunately sadly uh, committed suicide, and uh, but his last movie was. Uh, Unstoppable that starred Chris Pine and Denzel Washington and it and uh, it, it's a chase movie. It's basically a, a train chase movie um, where the train kind of can't be stopped and they had because it's, it's unstoppable. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's unstoppable right down the yeah, tunnel. I know, right? And uh, you know, it's 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 a super entertaining movie. Uh, you know, not everybody's a, f- a super fan of Tony Scott. I think he did some really good movies. I think you know sometimes he overused his style. Um, you know, like some directors do, like a Tim Burton. But um, I think this was a really solid, you know, pairing, you know, of actors. You know, Chris Pine and and Denzel. This was when Chris Pine was just kind of breaking through. He just, I think, just done Star Trek, and then uh, then the, then this came out, and uh, I think they had good chemistry. And um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a nice 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 little action movie. Um, I would have, of course, loved to see more from Tony Scott. I personally, I think I might even like him more than Ridley Scott. Um, Ooh, which that's, that's a, a hot, hot take, take, I guess. Um, now, of course, Ridley Scott's done some maybe more profound work, um, but I mean, I think maybe I, I just watch more Tony Scott movies. Um, maybe they're easier watches. I mean, some of Ridley Scott's movies are like kind of obnoxiously long. Um, like you know, Kingdom of Heaven director's cut is maybe one of the best things he's done, but mm. like his director's cut of Gladiator is unnecessary. Uh, well, I was, well, I was going to say Kingdom of Heaven that director's cut's like four hours and change. It is, long. but it's actually better than the. I think it's better than the original, but cut. But right. like his director's cut of Gladiator is unnecessary. Could there's no reason to add all of what they added in. Um, and then you know, of course, he did Blade Runner and he did he did Alien and they're they're seminal movies, but. He's also got a lot of crap in there, so it's like, Ooh. you know, he did he did the counselor, so that's 
That is very <laughs> true. I would say Tony Scott is a solid director. He's a solid action director. Mm-hmm. Like he's yeah. Yeah. I mean he he did he worked with um Denzel a lot. Denzel quite a few times. Um I, I mean like Man on Fire yeah. is ama- is good. Um Yeah. Well, I mean we even talked about his first film last time. Hunger. We talked about The yeah, Hunger. Yeah. Which is which is a vampire film which is really good. I mean, he did do Top Gun. He which did a lot of military a movies. Favorite. He did a lot of military. He, he was kind of like Michael Bay, <laughs> you know, in a way. Well, I think he's got more talent. Well, he's got he more has, talent, but more um, talent. you know what I mean? Like he did the pro America movie, kind of. He did like GI oh, yeah, Jane. He did, he did like. He also did Crimson, Crimson Tide, which Crimson which I Tide I think is his best movie. True Romance. True Romance is, is great, which is a Quentin Tarantino script. Um, yes, yes, it and, is. Uh, uh, Enemy of the State. I, I like Enemy of the is State. Really good. Yeah. I think Enemy of the State's a quasi sequel Con- to Conversation. The Conversation yeah. with Coppola's film from the seventies, yeah. which not a lot that's of fun. To, about. That's fun to make to be like, hey, it's just a sequel to the Conversation. Let's do this. Yeah. He also did a remake, The Taking of Pelham One Two Three. With that's not too Denzel. bad. Is it pretty honestly? Good it's the original's really good. Too. Honestly, I don't. I didn't love the original. I, I watched it. Not. Oh, yeah, really? I don't love with the original. I thought it was kind of boring. And um, yeah. Oh, who played? Oh man, he's in he's in Jaws. He was also the oh, bad guy um, in taking uh, taking a film. One, um, two, three. Um, the the cop, right? Isn't it? Isn't it? No, or is it Robert Shaw? Shaw. It's, uh, Robert yeah, Shaw. Yeah. Robert yeah. Shaw plays the yeah. bad guy in taking a film. Yeah, one, two, yeah, three. The original back in the seventies. Um, but yeah, I've always liked Tony Scott. It was a real shame. When yeah, he, he, he had uh, brain cancer apparently, and he uh, yeah, and it he, was making him uh, not be himself. Suicide. So, but you know mm, it. it very, very yeah, sad. but it, you know, I thought Unstoppable was a fun last movie. Um, it really was. Yeah, it came out 2011, 12, 10. 10? Wow. I was close. I, I guessed because <laughs> I know I know for years they were working on the Top Gun two. Yeah, yeah. Sequel, which I guess is still going to happen, but it's coming out next year now. I yeah. think, um, or whatever. And yeah, I know that he was working. He, I think he was working on that when he passed away in two thousand twelve. He passed away. Um, yeah, it's really, really sad. But I guess I'll go. I guess if we're gonna stay even heavy, because I mean <laughs> nothing gets heavier than that. Um, I want to go with the last film from another kind of cinephile favorite for many people. And yeah, this is heavy, heavy, heavy movie in terms of just being able to easily digest it. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the sacrifice, 1986, directed by um, Andre Tarkovsky. And now, those of you out there who know Andrei Tarkovsky understand exactly yeah. how heavy his films can be. Um, these films are not for casual film viewers. They're not. They're going to not like it, and they're going to probably stop watching after yeah, a little while. Probably gonna. They might even throw a couple <laughs> cuss, word, cuss words at you. Yeah, they. Yeah. They may even fall asleep yeah. um, because his films are just so cerebral yet. It's like it's I mean, like abstract well, art, you know. It's like very, very yeah. much. It's abstract, surreal, philosophical, theological. It's deep. It's dealing with all kinds of big conceptual ideas, but the way he delivers them to you are just so unique to him. Yeah, I can't really explain it. Um, very art house, very art house, very avant garde. Um, and this film is his last film, and this is. Uh, the synopsis of this film is at the dawn of World War Three, a man searches for a way to restore peace to the world and finds he must give something in return. And yeah, that's the plot of the movie. But 
there's so much more in it <laughs> than that. And and it's a long movie. It is most um, of his movies were pretty long. <laughs> it's two hours and twenty nine minutes, which isn't that's, exactly that, that's, super. That's long. like today's long, you know. Yeah, that's like t- modern days long. But if you look, his filmography, if, if, is yeah, chock I was gonna full say like Andre Rublev is what three and a half hours or something. Yeah, it's chock full of long movies. I mean, he only has. I mean, another director, he only has twelve credits to his name, and not all of them are features. Um, and it's really, really fascinating. Like, um, so he has a short, and I'm trying to even. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven of these look like feature films, I think. Yeah. Um, and I know I've only seen a couple of them myself. I've seen Stalker and I've seen Ivan's Childhood and now I've seen The Sacrifice. I have Andre Rublev, which like Steven said, that's a That that one might That's that's a that's literally a three and a half hour. That might tour. be <laughs> People would say that that might be one of his easier watches, yes. but it's still hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, I, I I thought Stalker was absolutely amazing. Uh, that, that one's just, like, that one's pretty my, tough to watch. Life. That one that yeah, one's it, but, I mean it's it, it there's literally a scene where they're like sitting on a train for like 15 minutes. No, it's gorgeous though. And just, you like, just like what? tracking shot just you're going through this the this like Zone X I think they call it. And it just you, it changes from like this oh this yellow world to like color, and it's like is it, man, uh, these movies transport you to a place you didn't th- know. Th- it this is the thing with a filmmaker like him, you know. You can you, I mean you can obviously you can obviously really be into his stuff and actually purely like his stuff, but even right. if you don't like, you're not like in love with it. You can still respect the filmmakers, right. uh, like what he's it, trying to it, do. And and, and yeah, that's where I come from mostly. Like so far, I, I I'm not like in love with his movies like purely, but I'm like right. okay, the, this guy's doing something that nobody else does, so I really respect his stuff. Yeah, he's yeah. a Russian filmmaker, so his films are I think predominantly in Russian. Although the sacrifice was in Sweden, was a Swedish film, um, and he's done like such films like uh, Nostalgia, The Mirror, Solaris. Um, a lot of these films I think a lot of people have either seen or heard of so I thought I would mention them but like I said his films are not for the for the the easy casual film goer and to be honest you kind of have to prepare yourself for these or, or they're gonna they're gonna knock you around <laughs> they really are um but yeah that's that's the sacrifice and I couldn't even explain this film if I tried I it's just one of those another ones you've got to experience it's for a creed yourself. Doc- but it it's is, a creed documentary it's his, my yeah, sacrifice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the '90s just. Oh called. man. Oh man, but um, yeah, it's his last film, and it's it's honestly it's still amazing. Yeah. Like he went out on a high note, but I want to see if it was truly. Yeah, he did pass away in 1986, so it was you pretty know, close. He did, yeah, pretty close to when he passed, unfortunately. So, Stephen, do you have any any more on your list? Because I got I got a few. Well, more I don't have any more to myself. necessarily talk about that I've seen, but uh, I mean, I, I have, have a few. couple to mention. Uh, maybe, yeah. Um, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America is one I was going to mention. Um, right. And we, you, we both haven't seen that one, so we can't really talk about it. The other Correct. big one that I, I I found that I thought would I think you've seen this movie. Um, and that is Edward Yang's Yee Yee is his last movie. Oh yeah. yeah, that movie's amazing. 
Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's talk about it's a long movie. Yeah, it's three and a half. It's 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 three and a half hours, but it flies by like you wouldn't believe. It's the only like Edward Yang movie I saw. Like I bought. I've seen I've seen a brighter summer day, and that movie's great. Um, Oh, I haven't seen a brighter summer day. I need to watch. I I have Yee Yee on Blu-ray from Criterion, and I need to watch it. But I was like, I don't have the time to. I I mean, the movie's so long. You didn't. I didn't have time to work it in. So, but um. Right. I mean, I watched a couple of other films for in preparation. I watched uh, An Autumn Afternoon, which was the last film from Yasujiro Ozu. And coincidentally, I watched it after I watched um, The Sacrifice. It was a complete 180 in every <laughs> sense of the I'm word. I'm sure. In the, sen- in the sense that um, just tonally, yeah. uh, uh, um, it, Ozu is so more, more easily digestible than, um, than Tarkovsky. And the film is... Once again, it's another film that's similar to being in the same wheelhouse. Um, basically, it's kind of a quasi remake of a Late Spring, which was a film he did in like 1949, I think. So, basically, so um, an aging widower arranges a marriage for his only daughter. That's the basic premise of the film. But Ozu, his films are so good. They're so the the themes they're hitting on are so contemporary, and just in just the way he shoots his films is he loves to use static cameras. And he doesn't move his camera at all. There's no tracking shots or anything like that. Like if someone's walking down a hallway, he'll place the camera at the end of the hallway so the person's walking towards the camera and turning into a room. It's stuff like that. And you would think that that would make the movie like not have any energy to it, but that's not the case at all. Like it's truly unique. So I watched An Autumn Afternoon. Um, I watched uh, Madadeo, which was Akira Kurosawa's last film. Um... That was it, it's an it's not Kurosawa's best film, but if he had to go out on a film, it's it, that's a solid film to go out on. It's a movie that's about um, this this beloved professor and how his his um his former students like just loved him so much that they just like they just like cherish him so much that they just take care of him a lot over time. Like they come over to have dinner with him. They they like find him a place to live and and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's a really like heartwarming film from in that regard. It dips a little bit in the middle with a certain plot point that I won't get into, but it kind of just like stalls a little bit. But the first and third acts I thought were really good. Um, I watched. I also watched. Um, there's some. There's not some. There's some bad films <laughs> I watched. I, I'm just gonna mention. I'm just gonna throw it out there, Stevens. I told you I was gonna do it. John Cassavetes' Big Trouble came out in 1986, yeah. and it's a zany comedy screwball remake of Double Indemnity with a completely different third act that takes it into another area. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, there's a lot of examples of filmmakers that ended up maybe going longer than they should have. <laughs> or maybe they yeah. just didn't have anything else to say and they weren't making great movies at the end of their career. Um, yeah, and I mean, also, but then there are also people who, like we said, star, like Charlie Chaplin, apparently his last film... Um, a Countess from Hong Kong, 1967, isn't a, isn't a great film. Although it stars Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren, so that's enough to get me to watch sure, it. Sure, yeah. Even though I heard it's not great, but another film that I, I want to mention is um, Max Ophel's uh, Lola Montez, 1955, is really really solid film. But it, unfortunately, he along with um, someone like Ernst Lubitsch, Anthony Mann and other filmmakers that I can't quite recall now, 
passed away before they could officially complete their last films. You know, Ernst Lubitsch, his film, um, That Lady in Ermine, uh, he passed away eight days after completing, like, principal photography, so he didn't get to put it together in post. Otto Preminger had to step in and finish that film. I think Max Ophel's Lola Montez, I don't even think they finished filming that film and it's a fictionalized biography of uh, of like a scandalized 19th, 7, 19th century uh, courtesan. And it's it's a really great film. If you know anything about Max Ophuls, his films are gorgeous to look at. Um, he did uh, The Airings of Madame D, which he did like long, like one-shot takes. Like he was one of the first people to do like one-shot, like long takes of like people walking and stuff like that. Um, he was absolutely great. I would highly recommend checking that out. But one that's near and dear to my heart uh, is, of course... Now, Stephen, this gets into a little bit of uh, semantics like we had last time. Oh, man. Um, Orson Welles' last film, up until two years ago, (laughs) was F for Fake. And now it's the other side of the wind. So which one do you count? Um, For sake of argument... I would say, if argument, I, argument sake, I would say F for fake because it was the one he actually helped complete. He completed it. Yeah, yeah, he was the one he actually completed himself. Yeah, I guess it's it's cool to just throw out, throw out the other side of the wind, uh, not throw it out, but just like mention it. Sure, that it is. It was a com- it was a movie that he didn't get to complete himself, but he was able. But it was able to be completed. You know. Well, but 25, 30 years after yeah. he died, after he passed away, um, and and but Effort Fake is all about like forgery and falsehood, and it's 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 a bit of a documentary, a bit of a faux documentary, but it's also a documentary. It's so incredibly unique. It's another, it's another like masterpiece by Orson Welles. Uh, the other side of the wind, just for mentioning sake, is it's a narrative film, but it's so. The way it's edited is 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 crazy. He shot it like at one of his houses that he was renting somewhere, and he shot it over a few years. And man, it's such a weird gorilla style film that it's so incoherent yet brilliant. So I wanted to mention that. And another one near and dear to my heart is of course Agnes Varda, whose last film um, Faces Places was nominated for an Oscar in two thousand for two thousand and seventeen. And luckily, not only that film. But all of her films are going to be uh, in a new Criterion Blu-ray box set, a la the Ingmar Bergman set, which came out two years ago. Yeah, I don't know. So that, that was a big. That was a big release. This yeah, I, was week. Say, I don't know that I've seen any of her movies. I've always known about her, but I don't think I've seen it. So this is me. I'm I'm going to be buying that set, and I will be getting my education. So yeah, I've seen a few of her films. Like I've seen. A lot of her early stuff, like uh, like her first film, which I mentioned last week, but like uh, Cleo from Five to Seven, Vagabond, um, some of her her short her like California short films that she did, um, and of course Faces Places I've seen as well. But she's just as fil- her films are very unique, and she end and she ended kind of you know on top. You know, getting getting nominated for an Oscar, all you know, all the crap that we give the Oscars is a pretty is a pretty nice way to end your career. Oh yeah. Well, anything else? Any any well, other one? Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean no, let's not that, go crazy, but I mean, uh, I mean, when the devil knows you're dead. Yeah. Oh yeah, Sidney Lumet. Yeah, Sidney Lumet is a really. I, I'll amazing tell you film. what, that man. I, I I think out of a lot of the filmmakers we've talked about, I feel like that that guy is maybe the most chameleon out of 
uh, mm-hmm. you know, he was able to adjust his filmmaking style so much throughout his career. Like, I, I feel like when you got to before the devil knows you're dead, he looked like he was a, you know, like a youthful filmmaker, the way the movie looks, the way the movie, the actors, you know, are performing. Like for a guy that was as old as he was, he was able to make movies that had an energy, kind of like Scorsese, you know, mm, like, yeah. you know, that, that he made movies that were beyond what you would expect somebody of his age to be making movies about. Um, and, um, I, yeah, that, that movie, Ethan Hawke's in it. Um, it's, it's a pretty damn good last movie. Yeah, it really is. And he was, I think he shot that film on digital and he, I remember in the special features for that movie, he mentions how, like how big of a uh, supporter he was of digital filmmaking. Cause it was just starting to like rise up around that time. Cause that movie came out early 2007. Yeah. 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 So it was a while ago. Um, there are of course so many more other films that we could mention, by such creates as like you know Robert Altman, which we talked about a lot when we did our '70s stuff. He did a Prairie Home Companion in 2006. For some reason, I thought Gosford Park was his last movie. I guess I was way off on that. Um, <laughs> and of course, there are people like um, I mean Pasolini, uh, but um, Pier Paolo Pasolini. His last film was Solo or The 120 Days of Sodom. You don't really go Jeez. out on more of a controversial movie than that. <laughs> I mean, or the uh, old jo- or the old joke, uh, Night of the Hunter. Yeah, the <laughs> Night of the Hunter, which was both the first and last film of Charles Lawton. Um, <laughs> you had Otto Preminger's The Human Factor, which I watched. It's 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 an okay movie. Cecil B. DeMille did The Ten Commandments. Uh, uh, Vincente Minnelli did uh, A Matter of Time. I mean, you have Fellini's last film. Um, I also want to mention Ernst Lubitsch's last film, The Lady. In Ermine, which I think I did. That you did, Ermine, you did. Which I did. Yeah. Fortunately, he wasn't able to finish that. That was actually his first musicals that he had done since, like, 1934. Because uh, he started off doing doing musicals in his career. But, yeah, that's that's pretty much there it. Were some, there mean, were some he, notable ones and some ones yeah. that were pretty good uh, last films from... from... I'll, say, I'll say this, though. Someone who went out kind of how he got his uh, claim to fame was David Lean when he did A Passage to India... Yeah, a Passage yeah. to India is a long movie, um, and this came out in like 1984. This yeah. wasn't this wasn't back in the day when uh, people were doing the long epics. He did he did he basically did an epic in 1984, and this movie is two hours and 44 minutes. So you know he went out like he like he rose to the top, and that was an Oscar movie too. I think it was, I think it, you're right. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was it, I think it got nominated for Best Picture. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of great movies that you can find. I mean, like you said, a lot of times you start from the beginning to the end. Sometimes maybe you should just start at the end and see where they ended up and then go backwards. Right, and work backwards. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. But um, I think that'll be it for this episode of the Cinema Discovery Project. Where can we find you, Andrew? You can find me on Twitter at Capzilla06 as well as my YouTube channel, Capzilla Productions. And you can find me on Facebook, Stephen Billings. You can find me on Instagram, uh, Cinema Discovery Project, or on Letterboxd. And um, next week, or in a couple weeks, uh, we'll be doing another Spotlight. Uh, not sure what we're going to do yet, but it'll be something fun, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but that'll be it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, go to um, uh, Podbean or Apple Podcasts to um, listen to us and we will see you next time and hey keep on watching them movies I know I will